0: Nice. So uh, I love this image, of course, the idea of fishing and dropping into the deeper waters. And I guess the question for me when I read this text and when I think about this song is, what's the deeper well that we draw from daily? What is the deeper well that we draw from? And we don't often think of it, do we? We don't often think of what we're drawing from, what well we're drawing from. We often just live out of narratives. We live out of stories that we've been conditioned with, our neural trend I mean our neural network, our, our, the way we've been raised, our conditioning. We grow up in these ways, and we draw from them unconsciously, right? We do so much unconsciously. So Peter's out fishing, doing what he does. He's a fisherman, he's a professional fisherman, he's with his brothers in business, he's out there doing what he does, and Jesus basically says, do it differently. You're the experienced one, you know what you're doing, you've been doing this for years. But Jesus comes out and says, no, do it differently, which is if you think about Jesus' whole life and story, it was all about an alternative view, a different well, if you will, to draw from than the one they were living in. Underneath, under, under the rule of Rome, but also in terms of just the temple rule, the piety, oriented uh, codes and laws, all of that was the well from which they were drawing, and Jesus was saying, there's a different well, follow me. When I was a kid, I think I've shared this, but I want to share it again. It's such a great illustration I think of this idea. When I was a kid, I was probably 11 or 10 or 11 or so, and I was coming home after having a bad day at work, a bad day at school. and uh, I'd just been miserable. I have self-esteem was at the bottom of the pit, and I was angry, and the well I was drawing from, if you will, the well I was drawing from was just this anger and this sense of something has to pay. You know, Something has to, something has to deal with my anger. And so when I got home, nobody was home. My mom and dad, as I think I've said, were divorced. My mom worked full time, so she wasn't ever home until about six or so. And so it was just the boys at home, sometimes my eldest sister, my older sister, but she was usually off with friends being a senior in high school at that point. So I was pretty much home alone, and I was angry, and I was looking for something destructive to do. And so I went to the back of the yard where I found some clay pots, because that looked like a reasonable thing to bust up into pieces. And I took a hammer out of the kitchen drawer, I went out in the back, lined them up on the wall next to the next to the garden there, my mom always kept her, her gardening tools to one side of the garden on the wall there, and I took out the clay pots, and then I arranged them in descending order because I thought that would be fun, like an experiment or something, and it looked nice and neat, and I was organized in my destruction. And so I took my hammer and I began smashing them upside down. I turned them upside down, smashing out the center, because I knew that there was some physics principle that if you, you know, the the center is thinner, the bottom is thinner than the rest of it, you know, for the absorption and such. But I knew that if you hit the center, you could probably maintain the shell if you hit it just right, restack them, and mom would never know the difference. Unfortunately, that theory didn't prove true because as I hit every one of them, they just were breaking to pieces. I was on about number five out of eight pots when my Uncle Mac came out the back door and saw me there with a hammer in hand and the broken clay pieces on the ground. And he looked at me sternly and he said, Tommy McDermott, what are you doing? And I did what every smart adolescent, pre-adolescent would do at that point. And I looked at him and I said, Nothing. And he came over closer, peered into my eyes, and he said, why would you be breaking clay pots? And I answered with the other universal question that every pre-adolescent and teen answers with and said, I don't know. And in some sense, I really didn't know, did I? Because I was operating out of a frame of reference that that I'd been conditioned. My anger, my temper, I didn't really know what I was doing except that I was breaking these pots. Now my uncle. I was terrified what he would do because he oftentimes acted like, our, like the parent, the, you know, the father figure in the family and wasn't married himself with, with kids. And so he, he kind of got closer to me. He took the hammer and I was waiting for dread when he said to me, how would you like to get paid to destroy stuff? And I hesitated because I thought this was a trick question. And I said, really? And he said, come with me. So he took me to his laundromat and he got me, basically I worked for him for the next several weeks, some afternoons after school, mostly on Saturdays too, and I was to go down between the rows of the washing machines at the laundromats, he had, he had two laundromats that he worked, and, and, or that he owned, and so I would go between the machines and where they were taped, because they were broken, I would tear them apart, take all the pieces out. And he had two boxes, which I thought were always fun, one was called useful stuff, and the other box was called less useful stuff. Cause he really never threw away anything, you know, unless it literally was just in crumbles. And so I would take out pipes and hoses and, 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 and clamps and such like that. And I would put them in the useful stuff and then motors and stuff that looked burned out, I'd put in less useful stuff. I had this job of taking things apart. It was so much fun and it was pretty much, didn't have to finesse it or anything. So it was somewhat feels like a little bit destructive and he could see that I was enjoying it. And I would do this for a couple hours after school. After a couple of weeks, he he, he was driving me home in his pickup, and he looked at me and he said, Tommy, you're doing a great job. I'd forgotten all about what had happened before. I said, I'm really enjoying this. He said, you know, I guess you've earned some money. You are thinking about what you might do with that? And I said, yeah, I have earned some money. And he said, well, what else might you do with that money? And it hit me immediately what he was talking about. And I smiled and said, maybe buy some clay pots for mom. So he took, us, took me to the garden center, I bought the clay pots. He of course had cleaned up the broken pieces before he ever put, you know, took me to the job that first day. Put them right back. I'm sure my mother knew they were missing, she never said anything. But my uncle helped me place him back in there and then I worked for him in his laundry mat for another, I think for the rest of the summer. What I wanna to suggest to you is that it's interesting to me how we frame reality. How we frame our relationships with people how we frame our relationships with strangers. And that what Jesus was doing in this story, I wanna suggest, wasn't the typical way in which we think of which was the more imperialist sort of um, uh, 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 imperialist um, um, uh, zero-sum way of looking at populating an institution or populating a denomination as opposed to, I mean a religion as opposed to other religions you know, amassing numbers, or amassing tickets for heaven. It wasn't about that. Because what I want to suggest that what Jesus was doing was Jesus was saying, let's go out and remind people that they're a part of the kingdom of God that is already in our midst, and everyone's forgotten, especially those who've been marginalized. That he was saying, let's rethink who we are in relationship to the divine and to life itself. Henry Miller, this wonderful um, uh, writer, y'all remember Henry Henry Miller at the early part of the 20th century into the middle of the 20th century, he wrote, this is the greatest damn thing about the universe, when he was writing his uh, memoir about his own sense of meaning and existence, he said, it's the greatest thing about the universe that we can know so much and recognize so much, dissect and do everything, and yet we can't grasp it. The fragment of the universe we seem least equipped to grasp is the truth of who we are ourselves. So when we really finally silence the ego's shrill commands about who we should be, who we are, and we begin to simply listen to the song of life as it sings itself through us. There's interesting thing about the gospels, the way that they're written. This one is in Mark. I mean, in Luke and Matthew, the story it, it doesn't have the fishing story. He calls Peter from the shore, but they're not fishing. In, um, in John, there's a fishing story. If you remember, it happens at the end of the gospel after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. He shows up on the shore, and again, it's the same story. Basically, they're fishing, and he's on the shore. Apparently just standing there, and says, you haven't had any luck. And they said, no, we haven't caught anything all day. And he said, well, throw it on the other side, same kind of thing. And they, fall, they pull up an amount, a huge amount of fish. Then they come ashore, and Jesus is already preparing fish on, on the fire. But what's interesting is in that story then, which, of course, was written, what, 110 years, 100 years, 90 years after Jesus' death. This was written in the, late, in the early part of the 2nd century. What's happening now is in reflection that Peter is now being asked, do you love me, three times, because you remember Peter denied Christ three times in the narrative. So now he's being asked, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Peter says, yes, then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes. So what happens is you see Jesus calling Peter and then Jesus qualifying or reminding Peter of his purpose and connection, his vocation. But what I want to suggest is what's even more profoundly in this story is this idea of reconciliation and um, uh, um, uh, facing our shadows. I, I don't know if you can find this September because it's a little bit out of place. If you'll go to the square, to the slide that says our, is, uh, our deepest fears are like dragons, it's a, a real quote. Can you throw that up real quick? If you can, I don't know, I don't know if you can do that. You may not be able to, can you skip ahead to it and then come back, there it is, yeah. Our deepest fears are like dragons hiding our deepest treasures. Rainer Maria Wilke, young man who in Germany was a well-known poet and philosopher. um, What Carl Jung had said that one does not become enlightened, the psychologist, the psychoanalyst, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light but by making the darkness conscious. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light. Isn't that counterintuitive? Aren't we supposed to be looking for the angels? Aren't we supposed to be thinking about all the good stuff and all the positive stuff? And he says here, what we become enlightened by making the darkness conscious. And you know why that is? You can just look around at society. Because when we're angry and we don't know what well we're drawing from, we don't know what waters we're really pulling from, what happens? It gets projected, right? Our anger gets projected. Our fears get projected. Our, our, uh, pre- our prejudices and our biases, they get projected because we're not thinking about our own depth. We're not thinking about the well from which we're drawing from. Jesus was trying to tell Peter, I think, and if you looked at his life, if you looked at Jesus' life, what he was trying to tell everyone when he would go and he would eat with sinners that everybody else rejected, that he would go and he would eat with people who everyone else considered unclean, didn't follow along the, uh, for the, the purity codes and rules. When he would do that, what was he saying? But that the kingdom of God is wide and embracing. And he was literally reframing the way in which we are to see the world and to see God's relationship to the world. But it's hard for us to get there because it takes this willingness to go deep into the well, if you will, to go deep into the way in which we relate to one another and to start asking questions, to start bringing it up to consciousness. I've talked about this in the last series that when we find ourselves resisting or we find ourselves reacting, what happens is, is we move and operate out of our brain out of our conditioning, but if we become more and more aware of these, we begin to bring them out of unconscious and bring them into consciousness to where we then can decide if we will reframe refrain the way in which we see the world. That's the challenge for us. I think it's interesting, the idea of catch, too. If you look up the word catch, because you know I love etymology, uh, if you look up the word catch, it actually means to be caught up. We think of catch because we think of, the, like I said, this kind of dualistic, imperial kind of orientation of adding numbers to something, building our team, so to speak, or getting tickets for you know heaven or wherever. We think of that as kind of a zero-sum reality, but if you look at catch, it really just means to get caught up, to understand. If you're going to go catch somebody, what's it really saying? It's saying, in a sense, catch up. But even in a more profound sense, it's saying, understand. And people, there are people out there I don't want to understand. Come on, right? Amen. (laughs) But that's the reason why Jesus is saying, okay, throw the net away. We're going to go look at the world differently now. We're going to go start catching things in a different way. We're gonna start trying to understand and be present as the actual love of God in the midst of the world. And the way you do that is to get caught up in one another. And that's difficult. Um, let's skip ahead here to the next one. Let's see what this one is. If it's what I think it is, I hope it is. Oh, um, yeah, this, uh, this is, uh, aren't you terrified of what 2022 could be like? Everything is so messed up. The one in front, I don't know what these are, dogs, rats. I'm not sure what they are. I think it will bring flowers. The first one says, why? Yes, why? First, the second one says, because I'm planting flowers. Reframing requires our living as if. How do we live as if we are caught up in this reality that we understand that we're all a part of? Next one, please. So I was listening this last week to On Being. Some of you all listen to On Being? Online, I know a lot of you all listen to On Being. It's a wonderful uh, NPR show, Krista Tippett. This last week, she had this wonderful speaker and an individual, uh, Trabian Shorters. He's the, f- he's the founder and CEO of something called Be Me Community. But his whole orientation is to work with nonprofits and to work with um, information groups like news media and others in terms of reframing the way in which they tell the story. And so he... Um, He talks about asset framing versus deficit framing, which I think was, it's an obvious thing when we talk about cognitive biases and all the different kinds of cognitive biases, but asset framing to me puts it in a real concrete, pragmatic way that I want to suggest to you. How do we create equitable outcomes for all members of our community? We start by defining people by their aspirations and not their challenges. When Jesus encounters people along the way, with Peter and the other disciples, everyone else is already defining them by their deficit, right? The disciples go, don't talk to her. The disciples go, don't, why are you eating with them? What are we doing here? And Jesus has already reframed, he's already framed these people in terms of their assets. Now, you might say, well, what asset does somebody who's a leper or somebody who's impoverished or somebody who's the enemy of my people, what assets do they possibly have? What asset could we possibly assume from Putin if we were to confront Putin or not confront, but if we were to engage, to catch, to get caught up with someone like Putin? Someone asked me that earlier before the service, because that would be difficult. Or someone who completely sees the world differently from me, how do we get caught up How do we begin to see what is that asset that we can begin to to frame in those moments? And what Jesus was basically saying to Peter was, the kingdom of God is here now. You and I are a part of this great ocean of love, this great ocean of the well of being, this great ocean of God's desire for all of us to live in right relationship, every one of us and everything a part of it. Do you not see it, this new thing, that is happening. And that's the challenge for us, is to see it. To dig down into the well that we're drawing from, and to bring it up to consciousness enough to begin to think differently about it. So for example, one of the things that he says that's an interesting way to, um, first of all, you already know that you do this, right? You already know that you see things a certain way, not as they really are, but as you think they are, right? You know that. Do you remember, the, you remember the, the, the picture I had up here last week? I think it was the week before. Todd, thank you. Todd spoke for me last week. Thank you very much, Todd. That was awesome. And, and so that was week week before that. I had the picture of the church up there. It was the church tower, and it had two windows on either side of it, and it looked like a chicken. Everybody looked at it and said, it's a chicken. Why would you do that It's a church? <laughs> Why would you see a chicken? Why would you look at the headlights of a car and the grill and go, look at that face? Why would you do that? because we are patterning creatures. And our brain is already patterned with so much stuff, thousands and thousands of already pre-patterned framing that we do without even thinking of it, so that if we want to see the world differently, we have to be intentional about it, right? That's the challenge, that's the practice. We literally have to bring it up out of our unconscious and reframe things. My son works with, uh, works with uh, South, Hills, uh, South Hills High School, and I, I have an interesting um, time sometimes getting into conversations with him, because he'll say, you know, it's an at-risk school. And so these kids are challenged. You've heard of the phrase, school to prison pipeline? Some of y'all heard that phrase? That's a conditioned phrase, right? That's a conditioned phrase that probably started back in the 80s, the 70s, I forget exactly when, when policies were the, the, um, the uh, um, um, no, what was it called, no, not, no excuses, what? No, not no child left behind, the opposite of that one, which was zero tolerance, yeah, zero tolerance. So if you brought a gun on campus, zero tolerance, you're suspended, right, okay makes sense. What happened was though, because we're patterning, what do we end up doing? You know you do this with everything. Things that you start to adapt, you begin to include elsewhere. You begin to adapt other things into that pattern, unconsciously. It's not our fault, it's what our brains do. So we begin to start adding other things. And pretty soon you saw there was zero tolerance for all sorts of behaviors in school. So that even Trayvon Martin, who was shot by a police officer, was stopped because he was doing something, essentially. I forgot exactly what it was that he had been doing, but it was, uh, it was one of those zero-tolerance things that he was then suspended from school, from, from, from the program. People are not born into the pipeline to prison, right? But we look at schools that way. People are not born to go to prison. That's ridiculous to think that way. People are not born at risk. We see them that way. In order to see people differently, to see people as part of the kingdom, we have to literally frame it. We have to frame their asset. To think about what their aspirations are, for example, or think about who they are in relationship to God, for example. How do we see? It's really not just enough to say, well, I know God loves you, poor soul that you are. Because that's what sometimes happens. How do we see one another as actually having assets before deficits? You see the news media, one of the things that that, uh, Trebion illustrated was this beautiful illustration of how the news media out in California for the health department had been talking about the growing population of Latino, Latinx individuals that uh, now they're the majority of the population. They're struggling in poverty. They're struggling in this way. They're struggling in that way. They're struggling in this way. It went on for paragraphs of how bad things are, got to the end. And it said, they are making some progress in this area. Some are getting some jobs in this area. Some have become elected into office. Trebian says, I already labeled that group of people as a losing, difficult, impoverished people destined for that kind of reality. But if you turned it around and you said, here's the way in which... Latinx and Latinos have been making progress in the last years. Things they have actually succeeded in, things that they are accommodating, that they are creating, and that they are moving forward, here's where they still struggle. Does that change the way you see things? It changes the way we see one another because we have framed it in terms of assets, not in deficits. Now, I challenge you all to actually try to do that with people that you meet on a day-to-day basis. With the news media you're listening to, actually listen to see, are we framing things in terms of deficits? Are we framing things in terms of assets? Because I think what Jesus was saying when he says we're going fishing for people, he's not talking about we're gonna go catch people to be in our team. We're gonna go catch people who kind of think like me or who are kind of safely enough that even if they don't think like me, they're still going to heaven, we're still talking about God over here. God's not over there. God's right here in the midst of all things saying, "You need to look, you need to see, you need to bring it up from our unconscious and to reframe it consciously in a way that really does begin to change the world for the better. I'm going to invite you guys on the band to come on up here as we finish things up. I want to bring this last thing up here this. Is that the last quote? Let's see. Yes. This last quote here, there is invisible, in all visible things there is a hidden wholeness. This I think is the greatest challenge for us to try to come to terms with as we think about what Jesus was all about in his life, what we're invited to be about, if we really do understand ourselves as being a part of this interconnected reality, how do we live in terms of that relationship? How do we live that out one with another? And I think that the, for, for me, it's this idea of actually trying to intentionally frame our encounters with people in terms of what value they have. So I encourage you this week, do that. See if you do that. See where it's not happening. When you catch yourself, go ahead and acknowledge, I just did that in a negative way. I just, I just framed them in terms of their deficits. Isn't that interesting? You can't change this pattern overnight We can change it by working through it day by day. Think in terms of the relationship to to creation itself. We change life by drawing from the deeper well and bringing it up to conscious and then asking, is this really what we are about, catching ourselves up in the kingdom of God's love? Amen.